episode of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today, we're talking to somebody who's a little different. Um, Dr. Neil Flock is a general upper GI and bariatric surgeon uh, in uh, Greenwich, uh, Connecticut, um, where he has uh, carved a career uh, in the management of obesity, not just bariatric surgery, but as a passionate and lifelong advocate for the whole story of obesity care. He's perhaps one of the most prominent social media personalities in the world of surgery with more than 130,000 Twitter followers um, and really understands uh, the power of affecting the lives for the better of millions of people through advocacy rather than just uh, what most of us do uh, every day, which is to affect the uh, lives of a handful of people in the operating room. His story is fascinating and uh, how he decided to do this and how it's been working and the journey that we still have to uh, take. So uh, join me as we meet um, Dr. Neil Flock. Uh, I'm John Monson. And this is Surgeons Lives. So thanks for um, thanks for joining, um, and apologies for um, um, having to change one or two times. Um, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join our our ever so humble little um, podcast, Surgeons Lives, um, where um, I talk to surgeons from around the world about their lives, obviously, not just their career, but what I call the stuff that matters. In other words, the bit that's outside of the office, um, as well as right. what's at work. So very casual, very, very relaxed, and everybody has a different story. Um, and so I hope you'll uh, enjoy a few minutes chatting. This is great. This is a, a complete honor. <laughs> and um, I am you know, excited. I'm sorry that I couldn't talk to you earlier. I'm going to put a couple of books under here because I think the angle could be a little bit better, but... Um, I thought you were going to put impressive looking books behind you, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I got a couple. Yeah, I got a couple. They're, you know, they're okay. Yeah, no, that looks good. So first of all, um, um, congratulations on the new job. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's a big change. I think that medicine's changed a lot. Are we we are you to tell me when we start or you've um, already started? Yeah, we started a few minutes ago. Yeah. Oh, we started. Okay. Yeah, so so what it's you... okay. So all of the legally liable stuff is, continues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that that's great. Yeah. So I um you know, I, this is a big change for me because I actually I'm working now in the town where I live, uh, being a member of the Department of Surgery at Yale. Yeah, uh, it's actually working for Yale Medicine Department of Surgery, but working at Greenwich Hospital, which is the hospital that uh, is in my town where I live right now. And formerly, I commuted to Norwalk Hospital, where actually I was born and raised. And my father was the chief of medicine for 
for uh, 24 years. So this is a big change for me. It's, um, you know, I'm excited. I want to build a program here, make it grow. And uh, as part of, you know, um, Yale University, uh, Department of Medicine or Department of Surgery, um, we have many hospitals. Yeah. Uh, there's Yale New Haven, there's Greenwich, there's uh, Lawrence Memorial Bridgeport Hospital. So it, it's a bunch of hospitals and a big program. So um, you've, you've nicely preempted um, what I always ask people to start with, um, um, which is, you know, a brief sort of life summary to date that starts with the words I was born in, but you've just told me <laughs> you were born in Norwalk. So, so far away after being born in Norwalk. <laughs> well, what what happened after being born in Norway? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a northeastern guy, but but uh, <laughs> so born there, and um, and you grew up in Norwalk. Well, I grew up in Westport, Connecticut. Okay, and I grew up the son, the son of a doctor who would have loved for me to be a gastroenterologist, but I, along with my two brothers, we rebelled and we became surgeons. So after having my dad, you know, talk about surgeons at the dinner table and how they don't, you know, they don't, never call him back when he needs them. Uh, I soon found out that, you know, us surgeons never call the medical doctors back because we're operating <laughs> most of the time. And um, but uh, but we do eventually call them back. Uh, so so I learned a lot from my my dad uh who is just you know was a wonderful mentor you think and you look back who who are your mentors yeah growing up and really you know I, I had the opportunity of having a father who just was an incredible um you know he an incredibly knowledgeable man who did research and just really uh was a forward-looking person he could put two and two together and realize where things were going and uh he he was preaching eating fiber in the 1970s and trying to develop uh foods and maybe even a fast food um restaurant where you could sell healthy food so he was unfortunately too far into the future for anything to succeed i don't think time was ready for that but, um, well, you know, my dad got me into nutrition. He was actually a nutritionist and uh, gastroenterologist. And he really was, um, was interested in obesity. So a lot of what I do today I really, really was, um, was developed by my dad. And uh, I, I just kind of jumped on the bandwagon and said, wow, I really believe this stuff. And... Uh, and I, I really, um, I really followed through with a lot of what his interests were, I, are kind of like a shared interest with me. So, so um, you said you and your two brothers became surgeons. Your dad was a gastroenterologist. Um, what was your medical career, you know, preordained, if you like? I mean, if if you'd said I want to become a novelist. Um, was that on the was that on the table, or were you all going to become doctors? Oh well, um, 
Well, it, you know, my, my training started, believe it or not, with uh, Tufts University I went to in, yeah. in Medford, Massachusetts. And uh, you, you may see this behind you right here. What helped me to get into Tufts may, may have been my grades, but it may have been more my painting because I really am a self-taught oil painter. So I use that originally interested in just drawing and then comic book characters. Mm -hmm. And then um, my mom had an old paint set, an oil paint set. And I said, you know what, let me give this a go because I, I, I kind of want to paint these comic book characters really neat and real. And um, then I just got into painting whatever, fruit, whatever it was. Okay. And um, I I thought it was pretty good. And I took one art course in <laughs> high school. And if I finished the painting, I probably would have submitted it to a, a contest, but the, the teacher took another girl's painting and submitted it to the white house and it got into the white house. Mine never did, but um, I realized it was pretty good. I looked around the room and I'm like, there's some talented people in here, but I think I'm pretty darn good at this painting thing. <laughs> And uh, and then I figured, you know, I really want to get into Tufts and I don't want to fill too many of these applications out. So I'm like, why don't I take a picture of all these paintings? And it, it doesn't say I can do it, but I'm just going to put it in all my applications. So I put my slides in and uh, I got into to Tufts. I got into Emory and UConn and I can't, what was the fourth school I applied to? So, you know, for all those poor little kids now who are applying to like 20 or 30 different schools, boy, I don't know, I couldn't, there's no way I could have filled all that paperwork out. Well, this was um, your, um, this was your personal statement. This, this is the equivalent yeah. of your personal statement. Well, I did a personal statement, but I also slipped this in. <laughs> and what, what I tell people is you've always got to think out of the box. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are rules, but the if you can do something more and you can be original and you can bring something else to the table then you need to show it and there yeah. may not be any line in that application or in the instructions but if you know that if you can do something that is going to help constructively then find a way to do it and and don't be if you, you know, you've got to think out of the box or you'll always be trapped in the box. So yeah. I, I think you really have to jump out. So, so that got me into Tufts. And from there, I, I, you know, I said, geez, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm headed towards this medicine thing as opposed to art, yeah. because I, I tried to think about, you know, whether to do art uh, instead. And then and then from there, from Tufts, I, I did, uh, was able to get into a couple of medical schools and, and BU was, was my choice. And I uh, went to Boston University. So I ended up in, in, uh, in Boston, uh, which was wonderful. I love Boston. The culture there is amazing. Great for, you know, great for students. It just did a, yeah. an amazing place to be. Um, except if you're a Yankee fan, mm. if you're a Yankee fan, you know, and you like the Yankees, 
Boston Red Sox are, you know, it's a scary place to watch baseball. You can't wear, put a hat on in Fenway Park. <laughs> Being brought up in Westport, though, you could have easily been a Red Sox fan. I mean, you could well, have gone either way, you know. You know, here in Connecticut, there's like some sort of a dividing line in New Haven. You know, <laughs> if you're above New Haven, you you go for the Red Sox. If you're below, you, you're more likely to be a Yankee fan or a Giant fan. And then the Patriots, you know, Connecticut's a little bit divided. Yeah, I was going to say, does it divide with the football as well? Or is it just the baseball? I think it divides with the football also. I yeah. think the Patriots, Giants... It divides. You know, the Giants were so bad for so long, people liked everybody else other than the Giants. But but then they came around when, uh, you know, when, when I started to hit my teens, they started to get pretty good with uh, with Sims, at quarterback. Yeah. Sims. Yeah, back to the Bill Parcells days and that sort of, right. um, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so you're in medical school. Um, was surgery always the plan, or or did it, were you a um, always determined, or a late bloomer, or what? Well, I you know I love using my hands because and and I I loved uh, the artistic. So I thought I would be a plastic surgeon. Mm. And one day in medical school, I saw this book on facial pediatric plastic surgery. So I'm like, wow, that would be really cool. So let me do that. And then um, I, I uh, went and did a residency in New York, by the way, because I got scared that I would settle down in Boston and have to fight with Red Sox fans for the rest of my life. So I went to Manhattan, Beth Israel Medical Center, and... Um, I thought I was going to be a plastic surgeon. And then this thing called laparoscopy started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that began in medical school. And one of um, a, a gentleman named Raul Rosenthal, his third fellowship, uh, it was his third residency. He had done one in Germany, Argentina. Yeah. And he had come to Beth Israel to do an American residency. Right. So he he was there and it was, you know, it was um it was my chief year and he started doing laparoscopic splenectomies, right. watching yeah. the tendings. And as an intern, he was doing this. And uh it, it was just it was amazing. And I said, you know what? This is it. This is the future. We're gonna be doing everything laparoscopically. If I don't learn this then I'm going to be out and nobody knows it now. So I've got to go figure out who does the most difficult laparoscopic case the best they can and go sign up with that guy. And what, so, um, uh, what, what year are we talking now, um, uh, Neil? So we're, we're talking 1996, 97, 97 was my, okay. right. my, um, my last year as chief uh, at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York, which is now, I think it's uh, owned by Mount Sinai. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. Beth Israel was, you know, the Lower East Side. So I ask, and, the reason I ask is because, um, I mean, I've known Roel for many years, of course, um, and he's not far from where we are now. Um, 
of where I am, I should say now. Um, but one of my earlier interviews, uh, if, which you probably haven't seen, but worth listening to is, um, was with one of my oldest friends, George Fielding. Um, and George and I kind of started advanced laparoscopy at the same time, you know, early nineties, he was in Brisbane, I was in the UK. Um, and he, he tells a wonderful story about how he got into lap bands with, um, the late Paul O'Brien and, um, that whole story, um, and, you know, was, was traveling the world doing advanced laparoscopy, which ultimately coned down to bariatrics, but he was doing colorectal stuff and splenectomies and Nissen fundoplications, et cetera, et cetera. And then the lap band became his thing because as Paul O'Brien said to him, you should be able to understand the patients because you're really fat. <laughs> That's what he said to George. <laughs> oh, poor George. So I do know George fairly well. Of course. Um, so, so you know, so 97, I, um, I found Ron Hinder. I don't know if you knew Ron Hinder. But no. Ron was uh, Ron's from South Africa, and he was at Creighton with uh, with Doctor Demeester. Yeah, and he was part of Demeester's group, which all those guys now went to U U University USC. of Southern California. Yeah. But they yeah. were at Creighton, and um, Ron Hinder took the chief job at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Ah, right. And he was looking for fellows, so. A woman named Sue Branton and I became his first fellows at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, and there were no residents. <laughs> mm. So we, um, you know, we went down there in another PA, and we were taking intern call at night, and we were covering the floors, and we were doing tons of, of laparoscopy, spleens, adrenals, colons, hernias. We did it all, and and but the. But the greatest thing was the Nissen fund application, redo Nissen fund applications, and parasophageal hernias. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't trained in any bariatric surgery, but it was great experience. We learned to sew. We didn't use any gimmicks. You took a needle, yeah. you, you made it like a ski, yeah. and a ski needle, and you just sewed. And he was mm -hmm. terrific. He was an outstanding technician and a great teacher. Um, and, and Ron taught me uh, a lot, Dr. Hinder. And, you know, from there, I, um, I had intended to go into academics. And I would, was looking at going to back to Manhattan, you know, from Westport, about an hour away from New York. Yeah. And I wanted to go to Manhattan. But my oldest brother became very ill. Mm. He, um, he was a gynecologist, and he, um, he was ex must have been exposed to radiation during Three Mile Island, and yeah. uh, which was the nuclear reactor. Yeah. He was in yeah. school at a college named Dickinson. And 20 years later, he developed an aggressive thyroid cancer. Mm. So he wasn't doing great. And I said to myself, you know, I really... I kind of knew my, I knew my brother very well, but my second brother, I really didn't know well. And he said, you know what, come into practice with me. And I said, you know what, this is an opportunity to work with my brother. And 
go into private practice, which I really didn't think, you know, I, I had done, I really enjoyed academics. And at the Mayo Clinic, we, we put out 17 papers uh -huh. in a matter of a year. And I think I wrote three book chapters. So I, I kind of, we were like a production machine at the Mayo Clinic. And um, I thought I was going to do academics. And then all of a sudden, I'm in private practice. And this and is in Norwalk? In Norwalk, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you, what sort of surgeon is your brother? My brother is, all, is a general surgeon. He never did a fellowship. But eventually, he learned bariatrics as well. So, um, you know, it came around, I, I was, you know, I was doing a lot of acute care surgery, trauma, and seeing people in the ER and doing everything from amputating legs to breast surgery to hemorrhoids to you name it, we did it. And, um, and then, you know, I said, geez, this is okay. But really, my love is laparoscopy. And I only was doing about 30 or so Nissen fund applications a year. So there's got to be something more. And Raul at a meeting going up the escalator, put his arm around me. He goes, Neil, you've got to do bariatrics. And I'm like, Raul, really? And I go, yup, that's the, that's the wave. You got to do it. And I said, okay. And I went down and I watched Raul operate. And he came back and did the first uh, th three cases with me. And we did, uh, we, we did three uh, gastric bypasses, and I was on on my way. And this was back in 2002. So it's 21 years ago. And then George, we invited uh, George Fielding down after we took a course in Tijuana with Dr. Ortiz. And, uh, and, and George came down and I did my first few lap bands. And George yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. And he said, he said, you know, I'm thinking of moving I'm thinking of moving to Manhattan. How much are apartments in Greenwich Village? So, you know, I knew something was up there. And there, there's a whole other story to that. Mm -hmm. But um, but it kind of ended with his, his you know, you know, being with his wife, his now current wife, mm -hmm. and everything that came down with NYU. And so we had been in touch. And uh, so, so bariatrics just took off and we built it up in Norwalk. I was the director of bariatric surgery there and, uh, minimally invasive surgery. And, you know, they looked at me and they go, what about your brother? And my brother said, you know what, you're onto something here. Okay. Let me start doing it. And, um, you know, as big brothers say, they start doing it and then suddenly they think they're better than you, but, uh, <laughs> You know, it took a while, but, um, you know, it, it, it's hard being the younger brother. It doesn't matter. You could be, you could be Albert Einstein. You're still the younger brother, you know? Exactly, yeah. Um, so but and, I mean, uh, like, the question I, you know, I have to ask is whether I'm interviewing the right brother, you know? I mean, you know, it could be, am I interviewing the correct brother? I should be talking, maybe I should oh, be talking the right, to the elder okay, brother. The right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, he would, yeah, he would say he's the right brother, and all I'm going to say I'm the right brother. Um, but, you know, we, we did work well together as a team. I do say, you know, brothers argue, and they don't always see eye to eye, but we got together for a good 20, boy, how many years? We, we finished 2020, so it was 22 years we worked together.
Right. Yeah. Two years together. And if I think if it wasn't for Obamacare that or the ACA coming in, that we probably still would be together. Right. Um, yeah. It's so just, um, uh, it, it's um, a good segue um, for me to ask you, um, you know, your profile, um, you have one of the highest, maybe the highest, I don't know, I don't keep records of such things, but, uh, you know, you've got one of the highest number of Twitter followers um, of any surgeon I know. Um, so, you you know, you're very active social media, but you're also what I would call, um, you know, socially active, politically active in the, you know, as an advocate for obesity and one thing or another. So I guess I have two questions. Um, um, you know, how and why, um, number one, and how come you have whatever the number is, 100,000 Twitter followers? And is it a good thing? That's a third question, I guess. Is it a good thing? It's the best thing. It's the best thing. Because when you take a step back and you say, what, what are we doing? We're helping people. We're doctors. We actually, most of us, I would like to think, passionately feel that we want to help people. We want to help patients. Yeah, we enjoy what we do, but we really want to help people. And when you take that step back and you look at what's going on in the world, I see two enormous things. Besides wars and fighting and sure. all that sort of politics, there are two very concerning things happening. And they actually may be one thing that's happening. And that is the environment. Well, you can argue whether it's a natural thing or an unnatural thing. And that's a moot point. But, but what is happening is the environment is changing. And the environment is changing to the point where it is affecting humanity. So you could argue that humanity is part of the animal kingdom and it's all the same thing the environment and people are changing and it's not getting better um if you look at the united states the united states is leading in a decrease in life expectancy and if you take out the people who got covid the argument still stands life expectancy yep. still goes down a very a gentleman of the Financial Times used the data from the Financial Times and did this assessment and excluded many of the factors. It did a great job. Uh, so COVID, pull it out. Cardiac disease, pull it out. Obesity, pull it out. It is going down. So we're living in a time where our environment is changing and we're living in a time where chronic disease is taking off. And what has happened by this wonderful job we've done of industrializing our society, moving out from the forests and uh, developing communities and civilization, we've actually are hurting ourselves by destroying our, our environment. And for the first time, that life expectancy has gone down. We see 
one disease and that disease is obesity. Right. But behind it is a trail of 229 other associated diseases and mostly chronic diseases, except for the 13 cancers that are associated with obesity. So although I can go to the OR, maybe do three, four, five, maybe if I'm really efficient, I have two ORs, I could do much more uh, laparoscopic sleeve gastrectomies in a day. I can help humanity a lot more by making an impact yeah. and alerting people to what they should already know and what the evidence shows is that obesity is a crisis now, but it's not only obesity. It's all these other chronic diseases and problems. Getting people to realize and to accept this is the true challenge. You can throw them evidence. And in this day and age, people won't believe the evidence. They believe what they want to believe. So it is so much more difficult today to get people to accept what we as scientists know is evidence or very likely to be true. And, uh, you know, we can argue as to whether, one, you know, one thing is definite or not or possible or more likely, you know, but, but you start to see a trend. And about in 2013, I realized that, that this obesity problem is unique and, uh, it, and that bariatric surgery is an incredible procedure. And mm -hmm. here you have a disease that is discriminated against, stigmatized, yes. and you have a treatment that works to treat it, but you can't get people to admit they have the disease seek treatment, get insurance to cover it, and get the best treatment for these people. So um, I, I was very frustrated. And as I began to look into this, I realized in talking to people and talking to patients, I wasn't going to go at it like a, a surgeon. I, I didn't want to say, geez, bariatric surgery for everybody. Here's my knife and everybody needs surgery. No. I looked at the, took a step back and I looked at the big picture. I looked at the obesity picture and that's what I talk about. The disease, the causes and the best treatments. And you have to be open-minded. Maybe surgery isn't the best treatment. Yep. Maybe medications are the best treatment. Maybe a combination of medications. Maybe prevention is the best treatment. And I needed to get this message out. And I thought the solution, I found it, it was social media, it was LinkedIn, right? One night. So I signed up with everybody on LinkedIn and I said, I'm going to be the greatest LinkedIn guy. And I realized that you could only get so far with LinkedIn. Yeah. And I, I was at a meeting. Uh, I was a consultant for the Lapbam company, which was right. undergoing a transition. There was a meeting in New York and a gentleman came in and at the end of the meeting, he spoke about social media mm -hmm. and he talked about Twitter specifically and how doctors should be on Twitter because it's very powerful because it connects with the media. And I was a little bit frustrated with this LinkedIn thing. I wasn't going far enough. I linked up with eventually, I think I have 10,000 followers on LinkedIn. 
But I said, how can I link up with as many people as I can, get these messages out, communicate and, and collaborate with these people and educate the public? Hmm. Communicate, collaborate, educate. How can I do it the best? And after he spoke, I sat there, I looked to my left. Darren Tischler was sitting to my left. Someone was sitting to my right. I looked and I go, guys, don't you see it? And everybody got up, the meeting was over and they left. And I go, I guess not. <laughs> and it was just me facing this gentleman. And um, uh, he, I asked, uh, you know, when his flight was and he stayed another hour. And he really dug down and kind of taught me how to do Twitter. And I just worked as hard as I could every day since then, trying to get followers initially by educating about obesity and bariatric surgery. And it was much easier in the beginning. Yeah. In fact, in the past five years, I've been stagnant at about 130,000 followers. Uh, because the way they change the algorithms, they really don't want you, you know, they, they put in mechanisms to prevent you from getting too many followers unless they want you to be someone like that. So the fact that I was able to do that early on, I don't know that it's so easy for others to do it. What was your uh, but main strategy? Was it volume? Was it a balance of uh, volume of posts. I mean, was it a balance of, you know, controversial contentious or was it, um, you know, persistent thematic approach or, or a combination of all? Well, I think in the beginning I was a little, I, I was probably inappropriately sensationalism. Yeah. I used some articles about nutrition and followed some people who talked about things that maybe weren't, definitely evidence-based and i think that that i i don't feel that that may have been the greatest but i was beginning and i was feeling it out sure. yeah and then eventually i quickly moved to evidence-based i said this is dangerous you've got to talk about stuff that's really you know based in fact and i i think it makes people you look unprofessional if you don't so i would mix uh propelling information out into the public uh, whether it's retweeting information, I would try to get people following me by rewarding them with a retweet or a like, which would help them. Um, I would try to connect with people and communicate. Uh, I started a list, you know, once I gained a certain amount of followers, a list of doc doctors on Twitter and put them on a list as kind of a reward. Um, I tried to, you know, really make live connections and communication. We started, you know, a group called Obesity Social Media. I wound up working with individuals in the OAC, you know, Patty Neese and Michelle Vacari, and became active in that. It led me to learn a lot about other people and other doctors. Um, you know, there was a woman, Heather Logie, was uh, was a young surgical resident. And she uh, started promoting something called I Look Like a Surgeon. 
yeah. about women surgeons. And I became active in that. So some of this feminism uh, or, you know, women surgeons was really kind of interesting. And I, I realized that I really felt that I needed to support that. Um, so there were some movements that I became involved with. And I really, it really, I must say, re reinvigorated my career. It gave me like this incredible purpose. It validated a lot of what I was trying to do. And I felt like it opened the world up to me. And I realized that social media really can do that for anybody, for whatever your interest is, whether it's colorectal surgery, sure. yeah. whether it's, you know, and, and I began to speak about it. I went to our ASMBS meetings. I went to Sages. Uh, you know, Steve Wexner eventually found me and has been, you know, really a, a very supportive of me. And, you know, Steve is really in big with the, the American College of Surgeons. Yeah. So I became involved in that. And he, he asked me to do some things. And, you know, his real honor and mastery of surgery. They asked me to um, do a, a, a quick, you know, couple page um, um, critique, I should say, of the chapter on communications <laughs> that uh, Dr. Sacrin did. So, you know, I mean, so, so, you know, Twitter and in mastery of surgery, who, who would have thought? Ooh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so really it, it opens a tremendous amount of doors for collaboration. Any downsides? Education. Much, any downsides? Any, any negatives have come back from it? Y yes. Along the way, I think we all make mistakes. Sometimes you send something out that has, uh, uh, pH, not PHI, but um, I had a patient who get very upset with me because there was something else that could identify the patient. Yeah, you know, I told the patient that I would do something and help them, and then I you, there there would there was a way that the patient could have yeah. the patient got upset with me. Um, so I quickly learned that you have to really be very careful and cautious on any media with patients. You know, in the past, we used to write articles about patients. Yeah. Here's a 32-year-old woman who swallowed a banana, okay? Yeah. Everybody in town would know who that woman was. Yeah, You'd be able to identify that woman because everybody in the town heard about the woman, you this know, and she ended up in the hospital. Now, these days, if you put that on social media, you get in tremendous trouble. Before... No, you're just writing medical literature yeah. and you can yeah. get away with it. So anytime I use anything on a patient, any video, uh, any identifiers, I have them sign a form, a legal yeah. document. Sure, sure. And I put it in the chart. And that way you're covered legally. Yeah. Um, um, one of the other things I was um, going to ask you is you're a you, you you tweet a lot about the um prejudice that you mentioned earlier on the stigmatism the stigmatism a stigmatizing um <laughs> of yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> um stigmatizing um and you know the inherent bias against obese individuals um um and you know which is a you know has been there for decades and has been institutionalized 
depending on what healthcare system you're looking at. Um, you know, it seems to me that particularly in the United States, for example, where the insurance companies are now beginning to, to you know, to pay for obesity care, whether it's medical or surgical um, and recognize, but there's still huge stigma, number one. And number two, society is designed to create obese people. It's much easier to get a burger and fries for a dollar and a half than it is to have a Caesar salad, you know, or a salad without the Caesar dressing. Um, you know, the global food industry is, is against you, what you're trying to do. Is yeah. that a fair comment? Yeah, it's a very fair problem. I mean, that that is the problem. That, mm. that is going to be our downfall because, you know, I think it's it's more complicated than what people really seem to think. You know, oh, the fast food is bad. Well, why is the fast food bad? And I think as we, and I will predict, as we break it down, we're going to realize that we're putting substances in the food. Not specifically, you know, we can argue all day and on the internet about carbs, fat, and protein, which is worse, which is better, what kind of diet we could have. And, you know, it's it's Dr. Hall that really kind of said, hey, it's the processed food. And not all the processed food, it's certain things in the processed food. And what it's coming down to is there's substances that we're literally, if you say, we're poisoning ourselves is what we're doing. And we, we, we have an FDA that looks at, at whether the food is safe at a certain level, but they're not looking at the long-term accumulation of these substances. Yeah. And I mean, I can name many different substances, everything from the emulsifiers in peanut butter to the, uh, to, to the stuff that, that is put on the wheat uh, in, that, that kills the uh, the insects. Yeah. So all these substances, you know, if you look at Roundup, uh, certainly if that accumulates in your body, it's it's going to hurt you. And we we don't research it enough. So we, we don't know. Uh, we 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 now know what we don't know. Yeah. And, yeah. and we know that we need to research that to come up with a solution because. I think the solution will be preventative and taking a look back and correcting what we've done if we choose to, because right now we don't choose to. So I hope that I can rally up enough concern to get the people to demand looking into what it is we are eating and exposed to that is poisoning us and 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 starting to kill Americans at a younger age. So I think that this is the really the opportunity. So I think that uh, I think we really need to, you know, work on preventative things. And you know, what I advocate for, getting back to the advocacy, is I'm not yet at a, at the preventative stuff. Yeah. We first have to start getting people treated because people are sick now. So if we don't take care of them now, those people are going to have, their lives are going to end short. Yeah. We have a responsibility to treat people. Uh, if I could outline out where I would go with my advocacy and influencing others, 
you know, first get medications approved because they're they're easy, more effective. People are more accepting of taking a medication yeah. than they are of having a surgery. Unfortunately, I'm a surgeon. That's how I make a living. But I'm very passionate about the medicines because those are going to help more people quicker. Unfortunately, it's not going to get them to where they need to be. Yeah. And that's where surgery comes in for the sickest people. And then you got to take a step back and you really got to do the big fight. And the big fight is that uh, corporate America and the government collaborating, really, you know, you don't, you don't want to come up with these conspiracies, but the government does get money from the, the, the profit that's Not made sure. in yeah. industry. And, you know, you just have to look to poor Michelle Obama. Yeah. You know, Michelle Obama was right. Her husband was wrong. She should have listened to her. She really wanted to change the food. And yeah. they they changed that. They they changed the narrative. They changed revisional history that she wanted people to move more. She really wanted to change the food. And that's really what needed to be done. And, and they put the muzzle on yeah. that. And uh, that was unfortunate. Very unfortunate. So I wish other, you would still um, stand up. Um, the other thing I sometimes see with patients regularly, um, uh, you know, fairly commonly is, you know, you see morbidly obese people and you ask them, you know, that I'm about to operate on for some other reason. And I ask them, you know, have they ever had a conversation um, before seeing me or indeed after my surgery? You know, is this a conversation they want to have about options? And there's a, it's, it's, you know, I often find a combination of resistance um, because they're, it's almost as though they're ashamed to go down that line, number one. And number two, it's a resistance because they're fed up with people telling them they should do something about this. Um, and it's, you know, nobody... You know, it says, yeah, I'm going to have my colon out because I have a cancer. Nobody feels ashamed about that or, you know, feels as though they're bullied into it. Um, but there's a real issue around that with um, with patients. You know, the late Harvey Sugarman said to me, um, you know, who, who's a strange man who did colorectal surgery and bariatrics. Um, and he said, mm -hmm. you know, the bariatrics is 50 times more gratifying than the colorectal surgery because you cure a dozen diseases, whereas, you know, you, you do the colorectal operation and the patient doesn't feel any better because they didn't feel sick in the first place. You know, they just have a right, scar right. and um, there, but you know, the bariatrics is the bang for your buck is, is, is just incredible. But we, we as society and medical and uh, main society don't seem to have done a good job in getting that message across to people. Well, you know, it, it's taught to us and it's ingrained in, in school exercise. You've got to exercise and you've got to eat right. And that will keep the weight off when in fact, the medical evidence does not show that medical evidence shows that it's obesity first starts with genetics. You're genetically susceptible to it and everybody all, um, uh, so all people are differentially, you know, at, at risk to it. Some people, 15% of people never, never have obesity. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to regulate our bodies so that what we eat, we burn off 
and we stop eating and we don't accumulate. So that's where the problem is. And it's very hard for people to admit that. Yeah, yeah. They, they cannot get over that because of the teaching and that teaching continues in medical school, college. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, school, college, and then medical school. Yeah. And we do a poor job of teaching our medical students about obesity. It's so prevalent and it 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 uh it affects everything else. Uh so we we need to do that in order to get over the stigma, it's got to come from education. Yeah. And I think we have to get into the medical schools and do a better job of teaching that. They they just kind of sweep over it a little bit. And nutrition is very important. It's nutrition is important for every disease. It's barely so yeah. It's barely taught. So in a few minutes left to us, Neil, um, let's pivot away from obesity. And let me start by asking you, are you still painting? I, uh, my wife did a wonderful thing for my birthday. She built a studio in our attic and with good ventilation. And I try to paint. I just don't do it enough. I, I started a painting, you know, months ago and i haven't gotten to it it's just so busy so i do try um i'll get back to it when i get a, a little little bit of time i i go back to it and uh so so the answer is yes and not enough um and what I, else goes on when you switch the lights off at the office uh what else i like tv and i like video games really? and of course i love so social media yeah. Yeah. Probably the the best release I have is, is this Star Wars game I play. Really? Uh, which is, which yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh! You know, you you have to take a, a little release. Uh, so so that's great. <laughs> I'm definitely a nerd. And one thing people probably don't know about me is is uh, I couldn't get. Uh, I couldn't get a job as a bartender or a bar back in medical school. So I went back to my failsafe, which was being a comic book dealer. So um, my wife is probably not boasting ever about that, but I have a tremendous comic book collection and uh, rare comic books that I do collect. And do you have, uh, but, um, is there one in there that you could retire on? Well, nothing I can retire on, fortunately, but I think collectively I could probably send my kids to a few years of college. Uh, so it's, that's not bad. It's pretty significant. Yeah. I have the first Spider-Man, um, yeah. Spider-Man number one, not the greatest shape. And then uh, a lot from the 1960s, yeah. pretty good shape. So what I used to do is sell them and with the profit, I buy twice as many. So I just kept building it up. Sure. Yeah. You know? So one of the questions I always ask people, and of course it varies from where they are in their career and their age and all that sort of stuff, but it's a kind of a double question, which is, you know, how would you like to be remembered and how do you think you will be remembered? Um, so what's what's your response? Well, I, I would like to be, I, I think I'm a pretty good surgeon and I, I think I have, have fallen into this little bit of a, uh, what I call a, uh, the Greg Brady trap, you know, from the Brady Bunch. You, you become an actor known for one thing when you're young, and then, you know, you really can't take on another role. I really am a 
four gut surgeon and a bariatric surgeon. But, you know, when I go to all the big meetings, they never ask me to talk about any of that. They always talk to me, talk about social media, teach us about social media. So I, I do want to be remembered as really a doctor that loves his patients, that is out for his patients first. Uh, that really wants to help them sincerely and see them get better and improve their their lives. And I guess my frustration is I can't help enough people. So doing the social media and advocating and changing from a social aspect gives me the opportunity to help more people than I could with my own two hands. Yeah. So really, I think those are the the challenges that um, I, I, I've taken on and how I'd like to be remembered is, you know, just a really good doctor, you know, that, that cares, that cares. It's, um, and, it's uh, a theme I've, uh, you know, I've interviewed a few people who have become politically active up to including, you know, government ministerial level. And, you know, they, uh, they, they echo that same theme, you know, on a Friday, I can help six people. But if I do this, I could help 6 million people um, by changing policy right. or whatever it might be. And of course, there's a compromise that goes with that, because the art of politics is, is, of course, as we all know, to our cost every day of the week, the art of compromise as well. Um, so, so now there are a few, um, there's a final set of questions that I ask people that involves no compromise. Um, and the reason for that is because even though there are no right or wrong answers, I personally know what the right answer is to these questions. Um, so you don't get any time to answer them. You just have to tell me what your answer is. And, um, the, um, People watching this in due course can make their own judgment as to your entire career personality and value as a human based on these answers. Um, are you ready? Let, let me have it. <laughs> okay. Um, baseball or football? Was baseball, now football. Cats or dogs? Dogs. PC or Mac? Mac. Beatles or Stones? Both. <laughs> Home or Away? Mm -hmm. Home. <laughs> Beach or Mountains? Beach. And I can't ask you the question, which would be Yankees or Red Sox, because we know that. And I'm not allowed yeah. to ask you the question, which is um, McDonald's or Burger King <laughs> would be completely, <laughs> exactly be completely, uh -huh. uh, completely appropriate, inappropriate to ask you that, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> uh -huh. So, well, listen, Neil, thank you very much um, for um, spending the time. It, it um, we're a few weeks ahead of. Um, of um of going live with this i tend to i try and send them out once every two weeks i'll let you know in advance so you can um you can corral your millions of followers to um make us all famous <laughs> um make us all famous um and um i really appreciate uh, you taking the time and um 
uh, and uh, wish you well in all of these uh, in, in these ventures. Well, listen, thank you so much. This is an honor. And, it, you know, it's just an honor that, that someone wants to hear what I would have to say. <laughs> so I, I really thank you for that. No, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Oh,